0: Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin. I'm an investor and the CEO of Cambridge House. And my guest today is Britton Hill. Now, Britton is the president and partner of Weber Global Management, a wealth management firm that handles the cash of super affluent individuals. What is very interesting about Britton is how young he is to be doing what he does. Britton is 26 years old. However, he's already gathered over a decade of experience in the market. And this gives him a very unique perspective. I would tell you that after my brief one-hour conversation with Britton, I find him highly intelligent, highly uh, thoughtful in his approach, but very pliable in his ideas. And uh, you listen to the interview and tell me if you get the same. So anyways, what struck me is his approach right now, where he's looking to allocate cash, is in the multi-billion dollar pre-IPO market. And I don't think I've had anybody on the show in the last two years who is focused on that like he is so we got into those deals how they're structured how he sources them what he looks for in any industries that he feels are set to outperform we talked about precious metals we talked about the gold market we talked about cryptocurrencies, specifically bitcoin and where he sees the bigger opportunities in the crypto market those being the service providers, the picks and shovels companies. So very, very interesting. And then we got into what we both believe will be the biggest bull market of our lifetime, and that is health science or med tech. And if you listen to my show regularly, you know I feel that way. So it was fun diving into that with Britton. We talked about what that might look like, what the future of health might look like and where the investment opportunities are. So here is Britton Hill, president and partner of Weber Global Management. This is The Jay Martin Show. Enjoy. All right, what's up guys, Jay Martin here, investor and CEO of Cambridge House, and I'm joined right now by Britton Hill, the president and partner of Weber Global Management. Britton, it's great to meet you.
1: Hey Jay, thanks for having me, it's good to be here.
0: Excited to have you on the show. I've got a handful of directions I wanna I want to jump in here, but for anybody who's not familiar with yourself or Weber Global, could you start there and just give us the highlight reel of, of how you spend your time, Britton?
1: Sure, well, how I spend my time now, I mean, Always analyzing the markets. I'm fascinated by investing and things that are going on, economics, and obviously running the firm, managing money for clients, working with people to help them kind of bulletproof their portfolios and find ways to make money in a ever challenging economic environment uh, with everything we have going on here. So, a lot of my time is spent uh, looking at the markets, engaging those clients, and then traveling. So, I like to travel. It's kind of what I do for fun and. Um, okay. It gets me out and opens up my perspective, perspective a little bit and helps me see the world in a different light, I guess. And that contributes to success as an investor.
0: I appreciate that. And talk to me about the client base at Weber Global. Who do you? I know it's a, it's a fairly affluent client base. And so, but talk to me about the products and, and how Weber Global operates. Sure. Uh, we're set up as
1: an RIA, which is an investment advisory firm. So our clients have separately managed accounts at Weber Global Management. And as you said, our our clientele does typically skew wealthier, but that that maybe could be said for a lot of firms because wealthy people are the ones with investment accounts, generally speaking. But we, we tend to strike a chord with wealthier people because Chris Weber, especially, he's an ultra high net worth investor himself. He made all his money through investing and he didn't actually start managing money for people until five years ago or so after 45 years of successful investing himself and riding for decades about investing in the capital markets um, for decades before that. So eventually, after so many years of success, he decided, okay, I think I could probably do this for somebody else and do a good job. And so that's when we founded our firm, partnered together. And now we manage money. We have clients all over the world, multiple countries, custody and Swiss banks and in the US. And it's it's a pretty fun operation, but we're strictly wealth management is what we do. We, we manage money and portfolio management for clients.
0: Yeah. Now, no, you're you're a pretty young guy in this business. And if I've got the story right, Chris Weber was like an unofficial mentor of yours in the sense that you caught on to his letter for years prior to ever meeting this guy. I think when you were as young as sixteen years old. Uh, yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. okay. So uh,
1: when I was sixteen years old, just turned sixteen, January of twenty eleven, my dad gave me Chris's newsletter and said, "Hey, you know, this guy started investing when he was sixteen years old. He's done very well. He's very successful in it. I know you like investing. You might enjoy this." and honestly, that was the best thing he could have ever done for me. Because uh, as a kid, I started buying silver coins. So i had been buying silver coins for years before. And this was at the top of that silver bull market. And in April of 2011, Chris wrote an article that basically said, time to lighten up on your silver holdings, get out. And I think my naivety at the time caused me to just read it like a gospel. So when he said lighten up, I just I didn't think twice, I just ran down and lightened up. And we ended up timing it to the day pretty much at the silver peak. So it, it made me a lot of money, locked in a lot of money for me, saved me from getting stung by that nasty pullback that silver had. Right. And then ended up rolling those into medical devices. And by the time I was in my, you know, early twenties, I was sitting really pretty because of his advice. So I had a job at Fidelity investments as a broker. I wrote him a thank you note, is how it all started. And I just said, thank you so much for writing you've really inspired me as an investor. I want to pursue this for the rest of my life. And we had, we ended up hitting it off really well. We didn't immediately partner on the firm together, but a few months down the line, opportunities opened up where it it worked out. I was registered and I had my proper licenses and credentials in order to be a wealth manager. And we were able to get Chris, his series 65 test passed and, and we founded our firm. So
0: you know i could imagine being in chris's shoes he sees somebody like you as this bucket of energy and ambition multiple decades younger like what a great investment as an equity partner what do you think attracted because if i've got it right you know there was some emails back and forth and you asked him for a job and the response was it's going to take an act of god britain <laughs> but then it happened uh probably bigger than you initially thought so what what did he see in you from your perspective what did he see in you That jumped right into a JV opportunity, because that's a big step. Sure.
1: The biggest thing was, is I understood exactly what he wanted. I mean, he had been pitched offers to be portfolio managers or an investment director or a hedge fund manager for for years. But everybody always said, like, you know, you'll move to New York, you will work in our office, and this is going to be the setup, and this is what we're going to do. And that doesn't work for Chris. That didn't work for Chris because the reason why he's such a good investor is because he has zero distractions. He does not go into an office. He just focuses on the market. He, he lives a very laid back, low key life. And the fact that everybody was just asking him all the time or telling him like, you know, we have this partnership opportunity for you. We're going to do great together. It was exciting for him. But the fact that they required him to come into an office or he had to abide by this schedule or do this, it just, it never worked out how I approached him is, is I basically said, listen, I'm not going to change your lifestyle at all. I know that would be a huge mistake. It'd probably aff- affect your success as an investor. So what we'll do is you sit and keep doing exactly what you're doing. I will handle the operations. I'll manage the compliance. I'll set up the firm. I will work with the clients because that's another thing. He didn't want to have to work with clients all day because if he's working with clients then he's not actually looking at the markets when like he should be. And That actually was very enticing to him because it didn't change his lifestyle one bit. So the way we're set up is I'm client facing, I do the operations. Chris is in the background and the firm really hasn't changed his lifestyle that much. The only thing he had to do was study for a few weeks to take his Series 65 exam so he could be a licensed investment advisor representative in the the US. So um, that's really what it was. It was actually understanding what he wanted and what he needed to make it work and being willing to do that. And because of that, we were able to create the perfect partnership where I do the heavy lifting on this end. He does all the market research and calls out the portfolios. And when he's placing trades for his account, all he does is CC me on the same email, or you know, he sends me an email and says, Hey, I want to buy some GDX or whatever place those order for the clients, then I'm going to send the order to my bank.
0: Got it. Now diving into your client base a little bit more. So are you playing equal parts of offense and defense? Meaning, you know, if you're managing, super affluent client base, the goals are often different from somebody who's looking to create wealth, right? It's like, I have money. Your job is to be the steward of this capital and protect it. And so what we're looking for is safe haven assets versus Mm -hmm. looking for those earlier stage or higher upside opportunities. How does Weber Global, do you specialize in one or the other or are you equally weighted all across the board? Talk to me about that a little bit.
1: What we do, Jay, is we have a general strategy. So right now, we do have some inflation concerns. So we're, for example, we're investing in gold and precious metals and things like that. And that's our general strategy. We know we want to have that for all of our clients. But like you said, each individual client has a different risk tolerance, different investment objectives. So what we do is we tailor that to each client. So for a client that has more of a a growth and aggressive type of risk tolerance, we'll do things like options and long dated options or leaps and things like that to give them a little bit more uh, exposure. And, and leverage or we will hold maybe a higher percentage in mining companies as opposed to gold itself because that'll give a little bit more volatility um, but that works in both ways you know when things go down it, it can drag you down harder too and then for, for clients that have a more moderate approach we'll do we'll obviously do things that are more moderate we'll hold a bigger chunk of the portfolio in gold maybe have a little more cash or or spread it across uh, etfs that are more balanced so that way there's not as much volatility so that's really how we do it. We have our general strategy, the direction we want to go. And then based on that that strategy, we customize portfolios within that to still meet the strategy objective without exposing a client with a moderate or conservative risk tolerance to too much
0: risk for them to handle. Okay. And then talking about your portfolio, you're still in your 20s, correct? Yes. So I can make the assumption, and you tell me if I'm wrong, that you're looking for upside. You're looking to create wealth at this point in your investor life. Is that correct? Exactly. Okay. So um, I am, yeah and so you, you started in the silver sector cashed out in 2011 you mentioned that you moved that money to medical devices i'm really curious about that so if you could expand on that for me that will be really interesting in addition i'd love to know where you're looking for opportunity right now and where you see value britain of course the medical device
1: sector was a recommendation by chris in his newsletter what what we were looking at is and what he was looking at was it was pretty obvious that obama was going to get a second term And that during that second term, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, was going to be passed, which meant more people insured, more people going to the hospitals, and in the end, more dollars to the bottom line of the medical companies, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, things like that. So what he did is he structured a medical device portfolio. Again, I was reading his newsletter religiously, so I just started ramping up and loading up on medical device companies, and that's how that worked out for me. Right now, it's it's really interesting because Chris's While he's always trying to grow his portfolio, he's he's 66. He's 40 years older than I am. So his his objective is very much capital preservation with a moderate growth type of deal. You know, he wants to preserve his capital. Where I am in a different boat. I'm I'm a growth mindset. I, I want I need to get to a point where I have capital to preserve. I want more capital. And so we we kind of work in tandem with that, and and it really helps us balance out the portfolios in an interesting way because we have we both have different objectives with the same strategy. As for what I look for right now, the opportunities I look for right now, something that's really exciting to me, actually, is the late-stage pre-IPO market. And we've been doing, actually, some private placements and things like that in late-stage companies. These are multi-billion-dollar companies. So, for example, we've just closed on a block of Kraken stock. Kraken's the, the major crypto exchange. And the reason why we like this space so much is because right before a company announces they're going to go public, there's this tiny little window where you can get an insanely good valuation. And then the moment the IPO gets announced, all of a sudden all eyes lock into this company mm. and the valuation just starts to trickle up and up and up and up and up. And then you go public. And then all of a sudden you have all of these index funds that are now eyeing this new company, you know, which exchanges are going to get listed on. And we're, what we're starting to see is IPOs are going Crazy, and I think it's—I definitely think it's a bubble, or not if—if not a bubble yet, nearing a bubble phase. I mean, nothing's going to last like this forever. But the average IPO in 2020 rose 36% on the first day of trading. So that means if you're able to get in just pre-IPO, even at the current price of the IPO, Mm. you're—you have 36% of performance on average on your first day of trading. But what we're doing is we're timing it. We're finding these companies that have announced, "Hey, you know what? We want to go public in the summer of 2022." And then we we kind of analyze that, like, okay, how close, how on track are they to actually make that happen? And if it looks like they're on track, then we'll find a block of shares, a seller, you know, an insider C-suite executive that just wants a little liquidity. We'll buy a block, we'll hold it until it goes public. And we've actually done tremendously well um, by following that model. And you, there is some fundamentals to it. We want to buy companies that we believe in and we feel will do well and perform, even if the IPO botched. So that way we can hold it out and write out, ride out a loss. But we're really just taking advantage of the momentum.
0: It's really interesting. It is, yeah. Now, now first question, how are you securing or finding these blocks? Are you looking at the shareholder base and saying, look, here's some early investors who probably would love some liquidity and approaching them directly and independently, or how do you go about sourcing those opportunities?
1: That and we have good relationships with venture capital funds and investment banks and brokerages uh things like that that actually hold inventory of these types of companies and so you you look at who the early investors are maybe you know the investors are an investment bank and it's as simple as making a phone call saying hey we're interested in this company we know they're going public soon do you know anybody looking for liquidity because the thing is is on paper these ceos and executives they're worth hundreds of millions of dollars but until they have a liquidity event and until their lockups are done they're stuck Mm. so a lot of them will be willing to part with a small percentage of their shares you know if, if i have 100 million bucks in shares I'll sell a $2 million block, whatever. I still have 98 million bucks and I get 2 million worth of liquidity right now, even if I have to sell it at a little
0: discount. So that's how we're finding our shares. Interesting, yeah, because immediately I'm thinking if these VCs are seeing the same thing that you're seeing, you know, they're so close to that liquidity event, what would incentivize them to release that stock at that point instead of hanging on for another 18 months? But maybe that's it.
1: Well, a lot of it is de-risking the portfolio too. There's a lot of uncertainty going into an IPO. The IPO can flop, it can get delayed, market economics, uncertainty in the future of what could happen. So it's, you can kind of see it on their faces. A lot of these CEOs and executives are super anxious and the VCs are super anxious. Like, yeah, technically we're this close, but if anything happens, our liquidity event could be botched. So a lot of the time, especially you'll find this with venture capital funds who their $1 cost basis is now worth a hundred bucks they're very happy to de-risk their portfolio a little bit. So if something happens or if the IPO goes and botches and doesn't do well, they can at least go back to their investors or console themselves and say, hey, we got our capital off the table. Uh, We have zero risk in this asset now. Everything's just free and clear. So that's that's a big thing you see.
0: Yeah. Okay. I love that. Now, you mentioned Kraken, right? Crypto company, crypto exchange company. What sectors, what other sectors in the multi-billion dollar pre-IPO market are catching your attention right now?
1: At first, I thought it was maybe a coincidence, but I'm actually starting to find that I really like tech, particularly fintech. Fintech companies, I understand maybe it's because I like finance and I've used all sorts of financial platforms and things like that. So uh, we did SoFi, which was a a really good one. We did tremendously well on SoFi. Uh, Actually, uh, we just liquidated our publicly trading shares last week on the 18th for 325% profit since we bought it last October. So in one year, up 325%. That's the kind of things we're seeing in this market. I don't think that'll last forever. But just to give you an idea, um, another company, Indigo AG, that's a little less known one, but they use AI to dramatically improve crop yields while reducing the amount of water that, that these companies are having to use to do it. They use microbiology and AI. And with all the droughts this year, Indigo AG has done tremendously well because these farmers are having to find ways to keep their sustain their current crop yields while being while being given less water to use. so uh, those are those are two uh, recent ones. and there's Kraken. um we're looking at a few others right now. this is a this is a new thing. We haven't done this for clients very long. I've done it personally for a while, but uh, those are the three active ones that we have right now
0: going on, and a uh, few others we're looking at in the works, but we'll see. okay, yeah, I appreciate that. So, so far, because you know you get fintech. Indigo AG. I love food tech as well. That's a really interesting sector. And I think just getting started, where would you love to invest, but you're just not seeing any opportunities right now where you think there's a market here that's yet to be discovered, but there's ha- there hasn't been any entrepreneurs or opportunities that really caught your attention. Like this is the horse I want to bet on yet, but it's probably coming.
1: The thing that actually is most interesting to me is kind of swinging back in the medical space, and it's partic- particularly around medical diagnostics. Interesting. And the reason why this is so interesting to me, um, my good friends actually founded the company Doxy.me. I'm sure a lot of your uh, followers have heard of them. They are the, uh, the world's largest free online telehealth. And they have a massive provider network, a massive platform. And what we've actually seen is we've seen we're seeing a lot of decentralization happening in a broad scale. We're seeing decentralized finance happening with cryptos and then that upsetting. We're seeing decentralized medical type of stuff happening with this online telemed. And I think everything is kind of reverting back to this age of autonomy. And so what I think the next opportunity will be is in diagnostics at home. Where people, you, you know, you don't even really need to go to the doctor anymore. You call your doctor and everybody in their home, just like a lot of people have a thermometer, have some way. Um, Theranos was close to this, although it turned out to be fraud. But some sort of diagnostic device where people don't need to go and get a ton of blood work done or don't need to necessarily go into a hospital. They can use online telehealth and telemed to then get access with the doctor. They can do something at home to diagnose themselves and, and run diagnostics and tests, and then the doctors are getting feeds of those. Or um, another thing would be, I think that the, the monitors we have, like uh, the, the um, Apple Watches and the aura rings and things like that, that these people have that are monitoring vitals, eventually that's gonna be a live feed that goes to your doctors and goes into these hospitals. And you know, if a vital starts ticking weird or something starts happening or abnormalities are detected, that's gonna trigger on a, on a medical front, you're gonna start getting messages from your doctors saying, hey, you know, we saw this, this, and this, and this, you may be predisposition to this. So the technology is almost there to make that happen, but it's not quite there. But I think that there's a lot of opportunity, particularly in that space. And I know there's companies working on it right now, but. Even for example, there's a company working right now that uh, you, you can't really tell looking at me, but certain resolution cameras, every time your heart beats, your head kind of moves like this and you don't realize, but it can get picked up on cameras. And so you can actually tell people's pulses. And then based on their skin pigmentation, you can tell their blood pressure, but we need more data points to actually have uh, accurate data on it. But things like that, where, you know, I'm just looking at you like this and you're a doctor and you can tell me, all right, your heart rate is this and your blood pressure is this and your temperature is this. And
0: I don't even need to go to a doctor anymore. I can literally get all the diagnosis from home. So, 100% doctors need to be in the other end of that camera, right? This could just be algorithmic diagnosis. Exactly. I love it. It's yeah, it's timely. I'm on the same page as you health science or health tech is more of like a personal passion of mine. But as an investor, I'm looking for opportunities and have yet to find anything Personally, that really, really excites me and jacks me up. But I, I, I'm 100% aligned with you on the autonomous future of health science. And one area I'm looking specifically is like an aggregation of all the data, right? So mm-hmm. I've never there, there hasn't been a time where more of us are wearing wearable tech as an example. Right? I don't know if you wear a whoop band or an Aura ring or an Apple Watch or a Fitbit or any of that stuff, right? Or if you do the 23andMe and then you do the GI map and then you do mm-hmm. Whatever else, right? The Viome lifespan test, all of this stuff. But what what's lacking right now is an aggregation of all that data that actually directs you somewhere, right? Right now, it's very fragmented, and so I keep Excel sheets of like this bucket of data over here and this bucket over there. But it's up to me to really determine what my next steps might be to optimize my health, if that's the goal, right? And yep. so a place to plug all that in that would then spit out some very basic recommendations that are accessible to people and actionable, right? So you're not looking for comprehensive or, you know, complex treatments, but maybe just some vitamin D supplementation or whatever it might be, right?
1: Exactly. And especially if you know, things like your pre your genetic predisposition. So mm. for me, one thing that got me really interested in all of this is I'm adopted. And it was a closed adoption. So I didn't up until very recently, i actually just met my birth parents this year for the first time. That's okay. another story. But up until very recently, I did not know what my genetics were. I don't know what I'm predispositioned to. I don't know what I have to worry about. And so the way I combated that is I was just going getting labs and blood work done all the time. And now you know, you have things like 23andMe or Um, there's there's other services that you can use that can actually give you a map of your genome so you can know what your genetic predisposition to. But if there was a way to take that, take those genetic predispositions, monitor the symptoms. So for example, if you have high cholesterol, genetic predisposition for high cholesterol, and then you can actively monitor your cholesterol. And then the moment it starts getting in a range, which is out of the ordinary, nip that in the bud based on just diagnostics that are happening real time or at home, you're going to save hundreds of thousands of people from having heart attacks in their 50s, if you can catch it in their 20s. Right. And because you know, most of the time, by the time you catch high cholesterol, it's because you're feeling like crap, and you already have plaque buildup and things like that. And you're already at risk for a heart attack. So it's like, okay, now we have to be very careful. But I think that what's going to happen is we're going to have a lot of preemptive diagnostics and things like that. Mm. Wouldn't that be nice?
0: Now, does it concern you at all? Or do you do you think about this? So you know, we, we are I am very integrated digitally, right? via Mm -hmm. social media and my platforms and all this stuff and so my data is being actively harvested and has been harvested for a decade i'm aware of what's going on i use the products regardless and i'm aware of how my data is leveraged to sell me products and and ad campaigns and all this stuff but that's relatively surface level data some people might dispute that but it is what it is as we move towards possibly a future where the biggest tech companies are health-based and the data is far more personal down to our biology do you get concerned about data privacy as we enter this new age of what the data is and we're no longer talking about my web surfing or consumption habits we're talking about my blood type and my medical history Did you think do you think about that at all
1: absolutely i mean that's always a concern when you're talking data and and diagnostics and things like that is okay now that you actually have this data what else are you going to be using it for other than this and so Ooh. That's definitely a conversation and and something to keep in mind moving forward, because I mean, we already know that they're monitoring every single little click you do on Instagram or whatever. And if you hesitate on this post for two seconds and this one for five seconds, clearly you like that one more. So they know exactly what you're looking at exactly for how long and why. And you can only imagine somebody with a chronic illness who's who's suffering, and then all of a sudden all these ads like get healing from lupus or you know this, that and the other, and it, it it can definitely be used in a very unethical and immoral way if you're not careful so there needs to be laws and rules around that but for me i i think that the benefits outweigh the cons i i think that the the data will will come to a point where it's an issue and you need to figure out okay you can't be using it this way and we'll make those changes we're we're seeing that right now with the social media companies and they're just going to have to change and evolve but you got to look at the benefit i mean if if we can uh catch illnesses before they happen especially cancers or heart attacks and things like that and save millions of lives and and tons of suffering i think that that outweighs the the cons of potential data issues and, and the use of that data
0: yeah no and i'm with you and i like that optimistic approach because you can go down some more dystopian paths right ensure marketing lupus medication to be as one giving my insurance provider access is a completely different scenario which could be much more devastating to a lot of people and I think is a primary point of concern as we go down this digitization of our health but I'm all for it and I use all the products and I love I love paying such close attention to the metrics that matter to me right depending on what my health goals are right now tracking things like my biological age I'm very competitive my wife and I are very competitive with that right and it's a lot of fun you get a lot of fun with that what's up everybody sorry for the interruption quick note if you enjoy these conversations i publish a weekly newsletter and it's free where i share my top takeaways lessons learned and any action steps i might be taking as a consequence in the market sign up at cambridgehouse.com i publish every week and it's free now back to the conversation So down the longevity front, then, are you are you excited about, are you looking for opportunities in that world? And when it comes to things like extending the healthy lifespan, you know, is that an area of focus for you personally, Britton?
1: Yes, uh, that, that's a huge area that I'm focusing on right now. Um, I'm very passionate about it. I've always been really passionate about health and, and um, knowing my genome, because like I said, I, I did not know my genome. I didn't know what I was genetically predispositioned to. And so it's always been a, a passion of mine. So I'm I'm launching a, a health fund, and we we have some some investment committed already. And I have a a good friend who's had multiple successful exits from med tech companies. He's went to Harvard. He's he's going to be the advisor of the fund while I'm the, the manager. So we, we've got a team, a really good team, put together, and, and some funding and capital we're raising right now. So this is something that I'm actually trying to put my money where my mouth is, quite literally, mm. and and move forward and see if we can make some things happen in this space.
0: We have to talk about this off camera if necessary. <laughs> if you're if you're raising cash right now for uh, I want to know more, that sounds really interesting. So, so what what excites you most then when you're you're going to raise some dough, you're going to start looking at, at opportunities. Are there certain subsectors within the future of health that are cashing your attention over others right now?
1: Certainly diagnostics, um, behavioral health type of stuff, um, and this online telemed, I, I think that... Online telemed I'm looking at right now is crypto in its infancy. Mm. This new thing, you know, people are really starting to catch on, but we haven't fully wrapped our heads around the the full extent and the the application that this could possibly do. And so that's why I'm really interested in. Listen, I never go to the doctor anymore. If I want if I want to go to the doctor, I I get on teledoc on my on my app. I pay my seventy dollars, and I literally am on the phone with the doctor in two minutes. He checks my throat. He's like, "Yep, you have a sore throat. Here's an antibiotic." Boom. I'm done in two minutes. I didn't have to go in and sub- expose myself to sickness and things like that. I'm done. So I'm, I'm really interested in things that make this telemed more accessible. It's like, what else can we add to this? How much further can we take this technology? Because what people don't realize is when they're, what they're really paying for in this type of thing is time. They're paying for the time-saving and convenience that's that's really it i mean and so how can we make this even more convenient how can we save even more time what are those things that people still need to go into the hospitals to get done that we can actually just do from home and people will happily pay the same amount or close to the same amount because they're they're doing it from home and it's convenient and saving them time so the doctors are still getting paid everybody's still making money everybody's still spending money but it just made it so much easier and so much more accessible because it's, it's difficult now to get labs and, and things like that done. So that, that's really the focus right now. Um, we are looking at some behavioral health stuff because depression rates, especially during the COVID crisis, have skyrocketed. Mm. And um, the numbers on online telemed platforms, uh, huge users of those are actually psychologists and psychiatrists. They've all migrated remotely. So it's OK, how can we further benefit those that struggle with mental health related illnesses and then oh, give psychologists, psychiatrists, more tools to use and ways to diagnose and and things like that via online telemed. So these are all kind of areas we're focusing on right now. I love that. We're really excited about it.
0: And you're right. Access and ease of use is a key obstacle for getting anything like labs done, as you said. And And just decreasing those obstacles to access, I believe, will have such a profound impact on improving people's health because if it's a challenge to book that appointment and to get to the doctor and and do that test, you're just far less people are gonna do it. We know as entrepreneurs, as money managers, what you measure in your life is what typically you improve, right? Those numbers you're paying the most attention to, that's where you notice the needle moving. And if we could provide that access for people to do that with their health, like what a game changer, right? And I, I love it. I see the tsunami of cash moving that direction, which is very inspiring. Uh, CEOs like Tim Cook saying health will be Apple's biggest contribution to the planet. It's You're seeing all the indicators, right? And so, yeah, I'm going to be paying attention to what you're doing there. That's really exciting. So I want to double back now to the crypto market, your Kraken in investment. Um, you you spoke about that. Talk to me a little bit about how you qualify personally. Do you, Britain? do you invest in cryptocurrencies? Let's start there. Do you invest in cryptocurrencies? And if so, how? Yes. How do you hold?
1: Um, I I have invested in cryptocurrencies. Right now, um, my biggest crypto holding is going to be Kraken. Uh, I really like picks and shovels companies. And Kraken, for example, during the month of May, they had a record-breaking month. So even though Bitcoin cut in half, it was a record month for for Kraken because of the volume, because they're they're getting fees on both sides. So I really like that. But for me, I've held Bitcoin multiple different ways. I've held the coin itself uh, via exchanges, and I've also uh, bought the ETFs. I don't think there's any one perfect way to hold it. I'm always in favor of holding it actually yourself if you could. But for some people, the crypto exchanges are very hard to navigate, especially um, people that are a little less tech savvy. So it's very easy for them to just log into their brokerage and buy the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, for example. Right. Up that way, you pay more fees. Uh, usually, you have a management fee, and things fees can be a bit higher that way. But like I said, the ease of use uh, it can be worth it for a
0: lot of people. I know you invest in precious metals, or at least you have in the past. Talk to me about how you view the relationship between hard assets like gold and silver and off-grid safe haven assets, if you think of it that way, like Bitcoin.
1: Well, I think a lot of people, at least a lot of what I've been hearing is it's almost like it's one or the other. And I don't think it has to be that way. I think that they both have good practical usage and they, they both are our value and um, cryptocurrencies especially bitcoin has in- inflation hedging properties and safe haven type properties just like gold does i think what we'll find is they'll they'll work in sync you know some people are going to prefer gold and those types of tangibles and others are going to prefer the crypto and the bitcoin if we continue to move down a more tech heavy space i can certainly see bitcoin continuing to gain market share over gold but that doesn't necessarily mean gold is going to become redundant forever um, if there was ever a, a really strong clamp down on uh, digital currencies and things like that. Obviously, it's it's really hard to go and uh, confiscate everybody's gold that's in a safe in their house, but they could lock down the exchanges. I mean, we saw that in China. Again, I don't think that's going to happen. You know, just thinking worst case scenario, but yeah, I, I see them working together. I own both. I own gold. I own cryptocurrencies. And a lot of my clients own both. They have, they have gold and they have cryptocurrencies. Um, I will say, sophisticated investors tend to migrate more towards gold. But it's because those markets are a lot less volatile. And I think that that is going to be one of the biggest uh, contributors to sophisticated investors really starting to recognize Bitcoin as a safe haven asset and bolstering their portfolio to the levels that they have, things like precious metals and bonds. It will be the volatility of the cryptocurrency starting to balance out. Mm -hmm. And I think that'll happen over the next 10 to 20 years. But It's going to take time because these are new markets. You have a lot of new entrants. You have a lot of uncertainty around them. And so you have a lot of people rushing in one day and then something else happens. And so a ton of people rush out and it just causes these tremendous price swings. That's going to really uh, upset sophisticated uh, capital preservation types of investors. And that's, that's the issue I see with cryptocurrencies right now, where gold does not have that issue. But again, I think that could change over time.
0: I agree with you. Yeah, I love the 10 to 20 year outlook similar i hold both i've actually hosted a lot of these debates on my channel the gold versus bitcoin debate because there's a lot of appetite for this content and it's interesting to ask those questions but similarly i think that's the wrong question to ask and comparing the two is a challenge because one has a 5000 year old history and one has a, a 13 year old history and right. you know there's there's no stress test like time that that's the thing right and so to me like it's it's interesting to hear you talk about the service providers because that's where i put a lot of my cash in the past, not necessarily in the crypto markets, but in other industries. When I'm buying crypto, you know, I've said this before on the show, I it's almost like I don't know what I'm buying and I'm comfortable with that because I have enough reasons that are maybes as in like, if I think this is a speculation, great. But if I think it's a speculation, I should probably be taking profits. And I'm not doing that just at this moment. Right. If I feel like it's a safe haven asset. Okay. Just continue to dollar cost average in don't worry about the price. No worries. Maybe that's how I invest in it. It seems like the the safest and most pragmatic approach, if you know enough to want a horse in the race, but you don't want to be reckless or too aggressive, right? I don't buy the altcoins, alt for example. Whereas right. if you think this is some potential future currency on a global scale, then you should just be gobbling up as much as possible, probably, regardless of what the price is. Exactly. Do any of those buckets resonate more with you when you think about maybe Bitcoin specifically? Um, uh like I said earlier, I'm, I'm a big picks and shovels type of investor, Jay.
1: I like the companies that make it either possible to create more of one thing. So like mining companies, for example, or and or usable. So the exchanges, the exchanges make transacting with Bitcoins possible. I mean, back when Bitcoin was first founded, it was very difficult to buy. It was very difficult to sell. It's like, I have a Bitcoin. It's like, great. What does that mean? you know, you have a Bitcoin. Congratulations. What does that mean? But now we're actually starting to see these companies come to market where we can now charge interest on Bitcoin. We can transact with Bitcoin. You can check out at an online store with Bitcoin. You, We can buy and sell and trade. And now Kraken has a physical bank branch where you can go from crypto to fiat and, and things like that. And so that's, that's kind of where I'm putting a lot of my money right now is, is more into these like picks and shovels types of companies. And I hesitate to call Bitcoin a safe haven asset only because I know that it has the properties of an inflation hedge. You know, you can't once the finite amount is created, there's no more that can be created. But the thing is, is I would never recommend an 80 year old put a substantial chunk of their portfolio in Bitcoin unless they had tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. Why? Because that's just not safe. It could cut in half tomorrow. Mm-hmm. and that would be awful uh, I can't say the same for gold i, I would re- i could recommend i would I would recommend gold over Bitcoin because um, mostly just the volatility concerns that, that's my biggest concern but like I said I think that bitcoin will get there we're still in the infancy stages we're in a dip we're entering a different phase where instead of just there being the coins now we're actually starting to see companies come on board where these coins are being uh, made possible to use and to actually transact and do things with so there actually are true digital currencies now and that's right. what i that, that's where I'm most excited right now is investing in those types of companies because I think that's where some great opportunity is.
0: Okay, so I'd love you to take a second and you mentioned you'd recommend gold over Bitcoin. I don't know if you're specifically talking about your, as you mentioned, 80-year-old clientele or just in general, but where mm-hmm. this question comes from is, you know, I own physical gold, I own physical silver, I own a handful, quite sure. a lot actually of, of mining equities, but that's not because I'm a gold bug. However, when I talk to my friends who are generalist investors, maybe who don't come from the precious metal sector, as soon as I mention I own physical gold, I become a gold bug in their eyes, right? Even if I hold far more wealth in real estate, I don't become a real estate bug. If I own far more wealth in equities, I don't become an equities bug or cash, I don't become a cash bug. But because I have some physical bullion, right? The assumption is, oh, you're you're a bit of a gold bug, right? So well, not necessarily. I think it's hard to study history with any of a focus on currencies and then think you shouldn't own gold. But talk to the next gen of investors, Britain, who are focused on cryptocurrencies, who are focused on swing trade in the broad equities market. Why should they consider and how would they go about adding gold to their portfolio? Uh,
1: I think you hit the nail on the head, Jay, when you said anybody who's actually studied, you know, the history of currencies and, and monetary debasement going back thousands of years. The thing that has always stood the test of time is having a healthy dose of gold. And we're kind of nearing a phase right now where there's so much credit and there's just so much debt out there right now that it it would make sense to have a little bit of gold because we're just we're debasing the dollar. And so I think a lot of it is just, you know, keep safety in mind. I'm not saying go and necessarily put half your portfolio in gold, but what's it gonna hurt you to have five, 10%? You know, because if all hell breaks loose, you're gonna be relying on that five to 10%. that's, uh, that's kind of the way I look at it in that sense. But uh, I don't know, it's a difficult argument, because I would never I would never really try to convince somebody to buy something they didn't want to buy. But Mm -hmm. the way the way I look at it is, you know, we're seeing inflationary forces. And the thing that most the, the biggest, I guess, issue that investors have with gold right now is they're coming to me and they're saying, you know, we have inflation, why is gold down this year? Yeah. And I think people think that, and this is wrong, that just because the moment inflation is here, that means the gold price should be going crazy. And that's, that's a, not an accurate way of thinking. And I can give a prime example that literally everybody in the world will understand right now. And it's going to be Clorox wipes. So we knew coronavirus was an active virus in December of 19. We knew what it was, the world, you know, there were, there were issues with it. And I think it was mid-January where the World Health Organization said, okay, this is like a big deal. We This is COVID-19, it's a new version of SARS. We need to start doing something about this. For a long time, they said like this, for weeks, "There, this is gonna be an issue. This is here, this is gonna be an issue. And most people were just like, it'll pass, it'll pass, it'll pass, it'll yeah. pass, whatever, it's gonna be fine. Uh, dare I even use the word transitory? Don't worry, this is a <laughs> transitory virus. We'll, we'll call it that. Well, what ended up happening was, One day, all of a sudden, people realize like, oh, this isn't a transitory virus. Mm. Inflation isn't transitory. It's actually here to stay. And it's actually doing damage. And people are actually getting sick. It's actually harming people. It's affecting people's lives. And almost overnight, we went from having a surplus of Clorox that nobody wanted to it's gone. And now it's selling for $100 a bottle on eBay. And I think that that kind of shows in a, in a sense of what can happen because we knew about coronavirus for months before, just like we now have inflation. We've known we've had it for almost a year now. Inflationary forces and pressures are here. And people are saying, yeah, you know, it's transitory. And the other people that are actually loading up on gold are saying, you know, well, why isn't it reacting? Well, one day what's going to happen is we're going to realize like, okay, I mean, in The inflation rate is dramatically outpacing bond yields right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bondholders are getting frustrated. If if it goes on for much longer, these bondholders are going to start selling their bonds, which is going to result in interest rates rising. But they're not just going to sell their bonds and hold cash because of inflation. They're going to sell their bonds and buy tangible assets. And bondholders are generally institutions or wealthy, uh, older, sophisticated investors. I don't think that they're going to sell their bonds and put, most of those proceeds into Bitcoin. I think what they're going to do is they're going to do the natural thing. They're going to roll into a low volatility safe haven, which will be gold. And that's going to cause interest rates to rise along with the price of gold, which is exactly what we saw in the 70s. So that's the argument I would make now. Listen, we have inflation rates. Six, the inflation rate in the US is 55 to 6%. Bond yields are 2%. 30 year bond yields are 2%. Imagine if that tripled in a week. How devastating that would be if there was just a mass dump, and it probably wouldn't happen that fast. But if people really started dumping their bonds, and we really started seeing those long-term yields starting to tick up,
0: uh, that can rock the boat a little bit, uh, big time. Interesting. Yeah. Now it's interesting to hear you talk about that. Now, when I look at my gold position, you know what resonates the most? Because I had a mentor like early in my investment career. There was this like adverse reaction to cash in the market. A lot of people were hesitant to hold cash. If you have cash, put it to work. Yada yada yada. And one of my early mentors had a completely counter point of view, and his was cash is the most valuable asset because it gives you the confidence to go after those high risk, high return speculations, which is where I focus. I'm in the early stage market. right? I like startups, right? That's where I right. I spend my time startups or, you know, venture listed opportunities. So companies are going public on a on a small exchange. And once I was able to wrap my mind around that, there's a psychological shift that occurs, which is now the reason that I own gold, because I don't think about it like five or 10% of my portfolio. I think about it like how many months of overhead do I have in my safe, right? And and knowing that there's that last, absolute worst case scenario insurance policy just impacts the way I go about my day-to-day life, right? And it's similar to, for example, I, I train martial arts. I'm a, I'm a kickboxer and I, I love it, right? I love it for the sport, I love it for the recreation. Another reason that I like it is for the psychological impact of just knowing that I'm probably good in a in a crisis, right? I'm not uh, a fighter, like I don't go out, pick fights, never. But there's part of my brain that appreciates having that insurance policy that in a crisis, you know, I, I've got an insurance policy there, right? I'm pretty good, right? And I think right. about gold the same way. It's that confidence, this financial confidence that lets me know I can weather a storm. I have a, a worst case scenario insurance policy so i'm good whether that's 6 months overhead a year overhead 3 months overhead a month it doesn't matter but it really impacts my psychology and when you're not acting from a place of scarcity and fear you just act different you take bolder steps right i think more clearly right and so i think that's maybe overlooked when i'm talking to my friends about gold these days that's what i try to communicate I'm like it's not just about it's not just about being a gold bug and, and look i don't think we're going back to gold standard anytime like i just i don't think so right but right? I still want that insurance policy, that completely sovereign, independent insurance policy.
1: Exactly. I think that's a great way of looking at it. I'm the same way. And I look at it the same way. You know, I always think about that when I'm, when I'm making an investment, especially in private placements, because who knows what could happen, but you always have that to fall back on. It's like, I always have an asset that I can take into any shop, any jewelry shop. I can give it to anybody and they will accept it as value. And it, it's it, like you said, it's just very comforting. It's almost like an insurance policy. And I, I look at mine the same way. I, I don't think we're going back on a gold standard. I'm not one of those people that, you know, this is all going to be a great reset. We're going back on the gold standard and then we're going to be transacting with silver certificates again in the U S and now, I, I think we're way past that, but Hey, you know, it's insurance, it's insurance. And the, I think the question that every good investor asks themselves on a trade is what if I'm wrong? And to me, mm-hmm. That's what gold is to me. I'm still investing heavily in u s. stocks. Uh, I think that gold bugs have a bad connotation because they uh, they're kind of the doomsdayers or the guys that are you know they're they're not only buying their gold, but they're buying their gold because they can't wait for the whole system to blow up. and they they're the only ones with gold and wealth. And I think that's what kind of rubs people the wrong way. I buy gold because it's an insurance policy, It's an inflation hedge. I think it's a good investment. It's been around for thousands of years and has had proven value. And I think it will continue to be around for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I, that, I I like the way you look at it. I I think I look at it very similarly.
0: And that gold bug gold bug doom and gloom mindset, that's a it's like a media culture, you know, and and it sells, right? Because doom and gloom, that fighter fight or flight response, those headlines that trigger that, they get mm-hmm. the clicks, right? They sell the ads. It's a good business model to keep people scared. And it's it frustrates me to no end. Similar, I think why a lot of people are adverse to stepping into the crypto markets because they 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 step into the community and what do they see? You know, you make <laughs> you liquidate a piece of your portfolio right away, it's have fun being poor, right? It's the laser eyes, it's all the sensationalism of it, which it's hard work, but you need to cut through that and understand there's also value there if you're not a maximalist. And the global market's the same way. The sky isn't falling, the world's not coming to an end. Cut that out of the narrative and avoid that media, but there's also value there. So I know we're bumping up against the clock here. So some some last questions to wrap up. Navigating the media landscape to get good information about what's occurring in the market is one of the hardest things, right? Cutting through that noise to get to the signal. So talk to me about how you do your research. Are there platforms that you gravitate towards and where should people look?
1: You know, as a wealth manager, you're always researching the markets, uh, especially when you're managing for ultra high net worth clients because you need to need to always be on your toes. So, for me, the biggest thing is if it looks like Clickbait and if it if it sparks emotion inside you, whether good or bad or fuel, or if you feel anger, it probably is, and you probably shouldn't look at it. Mm. You know, I, I try to i I just want the raw data and the raw numbers, and i'll I'll click on the Clickbait articles, just read it and see what they're saying. But for me, my biggest focus is on data. So I go to the Federal Reserve site every week and I pull the Fed numbers. I want to know what the balance sheet is doing, you know, did money, con- did, did they increase their balance sheet? Or are they reducing their balance sheet? I want to know what the Fed is doing. Because if there's one thing that we've learned over thousands of years of history, watching governments is don't listen to what they say, watch what they're doing. And it's the same with the Fed. Don't listen to what they're saying, watch what they're doing. Um, and that's, so that's what I like to do. I like to, I look at that and then governmental policy. So this is, this one's very tricky because politics are very polarizing, but uh, actually read, read the documents and i know they're long boring legal documents but you know everybody has their own interpretation of them uh, unless you actually read what the law is and what these proposals are and kind of figure it out that way it's really hard to say exactly what what's going on and travel honestly is a really big thing for example when the whole brexit deal was going on that was a mess. I mean, everybody was saying the UK UK was was done for and it was really going to mess with their trade and the pounds tanked against the US dollar. So in September of 19, Chris and I, Chris Weber and I, my business partner, we actually went to the UK. We're like, all right, let's actually see if there's any bearing to this. Mm -hmm. And we went and we realized that most British people, most Brits were just like big whoop we're just sick of hearing about it, you know, and we were asking people and we determined like, I don't really think this is going to invest, affect business here. So we ended up loading up on pounds. And the pound ended up recovering and rallying against the dollar 20%. So just by switching our cash from dollars to pounds, we made 20%. And you know, things like that. And the only way we could do that is actually going there and checking it out in person and cutting, cutting through the crap because they're, There is so much clickbait and like you said, emotion is what sells is doom and gloom is what sells. So the advice I'd give an investor um, is again, to reiterate, if it looks like clickbait and sounds like clickbait, it probably is. And if it's, if the headline sparks emotion in you and gets you excited or angsty, or makes you sit up in your chair, take a deep breath, Go ahead and read it, but recognize that there's an emotional component in there that's affecting your thinking. You know, you want to focus on the boring, the boring headlines, as weird as that sounds, because those are the typically the ones that have just the most straightforward information. But those are the ones that people look over because they're boring.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. And um, okay, so you mentioned at the the top of this interview, at a young age, you discovered Chris Weber's newsletter that put you on, right? And and obviously his style resonated with you because you stuck to it, you followed his advice. He happens to be a guy who puts his money where his mouth is. So you ended up in the right hands, right? Are there any personalities right now that you would point to, Britton, and say, if you're looking for that guru to introduce you to the world of money, right? Does any, do any names stand out to you right now? Um, well, you know, Chris is still writing his newsletter.
1: And I, <laughs> I that was very valuable information for me. But uh, not to toot my own horn, but I started writing my own newsletter. So anybody that's interested in private equity in particular, um, and my market outlook it's free. Uh, you can just go to my site. It's Britain and subscribe. And I, I just send out updates, I send out updates on what we're doing, investment things we're looking at. And that's a, it's stuff that's non-mainstream because a lot of it's private equity type of stuff and private deals. So it's things that you wouldn't normally see in a letter and that's because I'm, I'm shooting out at it, but I love anything by Stanley Druckenmiller. I know he doesn't put a lot of stuff out, but he's a tremendous wealth manager. Omar Aiden or Omar, Omar Ayales. Uh, oh yeah. And the Aidens, yeah. They're they're great. They're they're really smart. They do a lot of really good technical analysis. I love their charting. Um, I'm a I'm a fundamental investor, but when I do need some good technical analysis, they're always great to look at. So those are some really good ones that I like. You mean the Aidens sisters? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, hilarious. They were supposed to be on my show later today. I had to reschedule, we're we'll getting them oh, on. Oh, no way.
1: Yeah, yeah, Pam and Marianne, they're great. And they are very good longtime friends of Chris. He's known them since mm. the 70s. So very we have cool. a good relationship with them.
0: All right. Well, well, BrittonHill.com. That's B-R-I-T-O-N-H-I-L-L.com. So check that out. Free content's a great place to start. So look, Briton, it's been great chatting with you. Thanks for coming on and getting in front of my audience and let me pick your brain a little bit. Of course. Thanks, Jay. This is awesome. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.